0: Is President Barack Obama truly the fulfillment of the dream of Martin Luther King, or a corporate wolf in sheep's clothing? We'll talk to Baltimore-based writer and commentator Jared Ball about whether comparisons between the two men are apt. And, with France now clearly engaged in the violent conflict sweeping northern Mali, are we witnessing some sort of renewed colonial power struggle? And where does the U.S. fit in? Michel Chosodovsky of the Center for Research on Globalization tells us what he thinks in the final half hour. On today's program, Obama vs. King and the Mali endgame. Bringing you the analysis beyond the headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of January 24, 2013. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with some of the major news stories shaping the national and international political landscape. Benjamin Netanyahu emerged victorious following last Tuesday's elections. The coalition he leads, however, lost nearly a dozen seats in the Israeli parliament, which will compromise his ability to form a stable coalition government. His Likud Betanu won 31 out of 120 seats, putting it well ahead of the second-place party, the upstart centrist party, Yesh Atid, led by popular television personality Yair Lapid. Lapid had campaigned on socioeconomic matters and on removing the exemption from military service for Orthodox Jews. Yehuda ben Meir of the Institute of National Studies said of the election results, quote, The story of this election is a slight move to the center, and above all, the possibility of Netanyahu forming coalition only with his natural parties does not exist. He is definitely going to work for a wider coalition, unquote. Labor emerged third with 15 seats, the ultra-nationalist Jewish Home Party and the the ultra-Orthodox Shas party, tied for fourth with 11 seats each, and Hatuna, led by former Foreign Minister Zipi Livni, sits in fifth with seven seats. Two out of three Israelis showed up to vote, a higher proportion than in past elections. Results could shift dramatically, however, after the vote of serving military personnel are counted, and that comes to us from the UK Guardian. Russia is warning Israel and Western governments against a military attack on Iran, while encouraging the Middle Eastern country to cooperate more with the inspectors looking to monitor Iranian nuclear facilities. The warning by Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov came Wednesday at his annual news conference and only hours after Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu announced during his election victory speech that preventing Iran from arming itself with nuclear weapons would be the main challenge of the next government. the government denies it has nuclear weapons program, arguing its nuclear research is for peaceful purposes only. It has, however, been stalling on efforts to allow admittance by International Atomic Energy Agency inspectors to examine its nuclear sites. That comes to us from Reuters. A severe drought afflicting Brazil is taking its toll on the country's hydroelectric power reserves. Data from Brazil's national grid operator, ONS, reveals that hydroelectric reservoirs in the central west and southeast of the country, which power industrial activity, are operating at 30% capacity. The country's energy demands have soared since the government of President Lula da Silva lifted millions out of poverty over the last decade, thereby fueling a 40% increase in electrical power consumption. Hydroelectric power is the source of 67% of the country's electricity. A similar drought in 2001 led to energy rationing across the country in which citizens had to voluntarily cut back on 20% of their consumption or be cut off. Electricity generation is now supplemented by thermoelectric plants fueled by diesel and natural gas. Although with natural gas prices on the increase, current President Rousseff will be hard-pressed to fulfill her pledge of cutting electricity rates by 20%. That comes to us from BBC Brazil, Sao Paulo. The United States is assisting France in the movement of troops and equipment to Mali to push back Islamic militants who have taken root in the northern part of the country. Reporters have witnessed three C-17 transport planes from the U.S. have landed in Mali Monday and Tuesday morning, and one U.S.-flagged military transport is reported as having left the Istra's airbase in the south of France. According to Tom Saunders of the U.S. military's Africa Command, the airlifts will continue over the next several days. U.S. Defense Secretary Leon Panetta has confirmed that the U.S. is also providing intelligence support to the French but would not confirm if that support includes unmanned drones or refueling tankers for French fighters conducting airstrikes. That comes to us from RT and the New York Times. America's first black president, Barack Obama, was recently sworn into the Oval Office for the second time, a major milestone in the history of American politics. Obama's inaugural address, by coincidence, was given January 21st on Martin Luther King Day, further cementing the tendency among Americans to present Obama as the realization of Dr. King's dream. Not Everyone holds the U.S. President in such high-minded terms. One of these critics is Jared Ball... Dr. Jared Ball is an Associate Professor of Communication Studies at Morgan State University, specializing in issues around colonialism, history, and mass media theory. A past contributor to BlackAgendaReport.com, he's co-author with Todd Stephen Burroughs of the recently released book A Lie of Reinvention, Correcting Manning Marable's Malcolm X. His website is imixwhatilike.org. He joins us now from Baltimore. So thank you for joining us, uh, Dr. Ball. It's a pleasure to be with you. Okay, now, um, you, uh, you just heard my uh, introductory remarks. Dr. Ball, uh, I know that you and your fellow contributors at com have been quite critical of the uh, Obama administration uh, as it's uh, manifested itself in the first term. And uh, particularly uh, critical of the attempts to integrate the career of Barack Obama with the legacy of Dr. King. I, I wonder if there are maybe just a-, a few examples you might want to point out to a, a listening, listening audience, particularly in Canada. You know, Canadians seem to have such a, a love affair with uh, your president. Uh, wh- what are some of the things that uh, you think people should be mindful of when uh, they evoke these sorts of comparisons?
1: Well, the first is, is simply that the, there really is no comparison. Uh, the two do not have any similar uh, origins in terms of their political career, uh, which I think is a good place to start. Uh, and then, of course, because of that, they have uh, almost nothing in common in terms of the decisions they make or the policies they support uh, or the positions they take publicly uh, on anything from race to domestic or foreign affairs. Um, but to start with, the the it is important to remember that Dr. King was a product of a liberation movement. He was brought into the movement. Uh, he was he was encouraged by the movement to take a leadership role. He was pushed by the movements in this country and around the world to take ever increasingly radical positions. And he became a threat to the United States and was thusly assassinated. Um, uh, because of that. Uh, and, again, I mean, I do think it's important that um, the global research website and others are doing important work in reminding people of the 1999 trial uh, where a jury hearing all the evidence involved concluded that there was a conspiracy involving the federal government in the assassination of Dr. King. And one of the reasons I think that that's so hard for people to, to understand or interpret, and, of course, secondly to the fact that, um it got that, that trial got very little coverage, is that they are not aware, most of us are not made aware of the increasingly radical trajectory that uh, Dr. King had been on since he's often frozen in the 1963 I Have a Dream speech. So we never hear of him referring to that speech as, you know, that dream as having become a nightmare or his increasing criticism of capitalism, white supremacy and militarism, and specifically white liberals and the black bourgeoisie. He became a staunch critic. Uh, of, of those groups as not uh, contributing appropriately to the struggle. Uh, Barack Obama, on the other hand, uh, is, is imposed upon us from the uh, the exact opposite uh, political trajectory. He is a Democratic Leadership Council-inspired uh, uh, Democratic Party candidate vetted by the right wing of the Democratic Party and is seen as someone as Paul Street has identified in one of his books on the subject uh, where, where Obama was described as being black, but not civil rights black. Uh, he is the most heavily Wall Street funded candidate in the history of presidential politics in the United States, uh, and his his uh, cabinet uh, he stocked with mostly Clintonite types holdovers uh, and the very people who um, uh, not only increased the gap between rich and poor, but increased incarceration rates of black people and expanded wars. Uh, it, it, um, uh, at that time, expanded, uh, you know, invasions and and, and military uh, uh, strikes around the world. And certainly Obama has extended um, even Bush's military policies and worsened them in ways that a white president could not get away from. So even as I've tried to say, uh, even if someone is prone to like or support President Obama, they have to do so consciously aware of the fact that he is decidedly different than a Dr. King. Um, at which point that's a separate conversation. But there is no way for anyone to look at the historical record of what these men have contributed, said, or done and see uh, one as having anything to do with the other. In fact, quite the opposite, that Obama is the antithesis to Dr. King. He is the system's response to a
0: Dr. King and a movement that produced Dr. King. Hmm. Now, um, you you rightly point out, like, Obama is is a figure within uh, a system, I wonder what you would say to uh, some, you know, thoughtful figures who who still maintain that support for Obama, sort of with the the the, uh, the idea that there's uh, that he's basically a good guy, but in a bad place. He's doing the best that he can under these circumstances, with the Republican backed, uh, you know, all those Republicans he's got to contend with, and with you know all, all these other special interests. I mean, what, what would you say to that kind of argument?
1: Well, again, I mean, at a certain point, uh, everyone has to get past um, symbolism, emotion, um, fantasy, and hope and look at the real material conditions, the real impact, the actual policies undertaken, the statements made, the statements contradicted, uh, and then make an assessment. Uh, And I think what usually is often the case is that Um, in part because we are all overworked and overstressed uh, and under-supported in our daily lives. We just don't have the time to keep up with everything at the rates we're supposed to, and we're not encouraged to primarily because the media environment, particularly in the United States, is as horrific an environment as I think could exist anywhere. So it's very difficult for, I think, many people to keep up with these things. Then, of course, we have levels, as I would argue, of... of, of, uh, um, uh, uh, that that sort of insulates um, the majority of the population from ever hearing reality, and they, you know whether it's politicians or even academics, so-called pundits. Um, uh, you know, folks who uh, you know certainly entertainers were given, I think, undue um, time to discuss politics. Uh, we are not given anything by w- you know by way of encouragement to look deeper to understand what is actually happening. Mm. Um, but uh, and I'll and I add to that Obama's brilliant uh, for whatever I might think of him politically or even in character morally, character wise or whatever he is brilliant, he is talented he is one of the most skillful people in front of a camera, in front of a microphone um, and so he poses for me a, quite a, 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 you know a, 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 a serious uh, opponent in that he is able to to obfuscate and um, you know, or uh, 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 reshape himself, uh, depending on his environment, that he makes allusions to Dr. King in his inaugural speech, or uh, he'll make allusions to to um, uh, progressive statements. He'll co-opt Cesar Chavez's phrase, si se Puede, and turn it into Yes, We Can for a Democratic Party <laughs> Wall Street candidate. Uh but if you read his books, I mean, I take him at his word, and I take the word of those who support him, and, and, and what I can see from my own eyes and what I read, that he is as smart as people say he is. And then when I read, uh, in, in you know, Dreams of My Father, or for instance, um, what he said when he wasn't sure, at least as far as we know, that he was going to be a, 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 a candidate of this nature, um, he very clearly understands how race works. He understands how class and economics work. He understands how... Inequality works. He has a working knowledge of the social movements to which he will uh, allude to some sort of uh, connection. Uh, But uh, obviously, you know, so he knows enough to cloak himself in a in a black struggle, in particular, and in a black cultural um, uh, environment, uh, so to speak. He knows how to cloak himself in progressive. uh, you know, progressive uh uh, uh garnish, so to speak. He knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Uh so he's skillful at manipulating his audience and it becomes very difficult to to uh to uh, to break through all of that. And if I was just that that, you know, sort of where I started, that the desperation in this country, um, the, the the suffering in this country, the the unrequited uh struggles in this country have all led to a lot of people wanting this to be more than what I think all of us um, deep down know it is. And uh, uh, so it's a formidable thing, and it's something we've never seen before. So I think even a lot of great people that we would have looked to for an analysis of this, um, uh, you know, in the past uh, have themselves been um, deluded uh, by the moment and by the, the, the overwhelming support in the community. And have not wanted to to raise enough of a critique um, about what he's actually doing and the policy he actually supports, which is why I find it to be increasingly disrespectful that he would make these, his, he and his camp would make these connections to a Dr. King uh, and to a liberation struggle that Obama has absolutely nothing to do with and has absolutely no support for.
0: Now, speaking of, uh, you just mentioned manipulating the public. Um, I, I was wondering if, uh, if, if you heard his uh, inaugural address, and, and beyond the, the references to uh, Dr. King uh, in that speech, was there anything else about it in terms of what he said or what he, what he didn't say that, that really uh, stood out in your mind as something to, con- to be concerned about?
1: Well, in, a, in, a, in an attempt to, in a, in a rhetorical flourish to a, a, a appease those who would be looking for that connection to Dr. King since he and his camp have been so quick to make it, uh, he did say the word poor one time, but he never actually used the word poverty. Uh, he certainly never said anything uh, uh, about addressing or going, uh, you know, extending a, a war against poverty or addressing the need to end poverty or the, the increasing inequality uh, uh, between rich and poor, between black and white, and so on. Uh, and he just makes his allusions. His, his, he just keeps making these references to the middle class, which is really just cold word for we're just going to help people who – uh, already have some means to help themselves so that they will vote for me and, and protect me. But he also added, he had, a, he had a few references that, that were more akin to, to the old notion of manifest destiny, where he said outright that God has granted the United States this privileged position of power, and therefore it is our duty
2: to uh,
1: extend peace and democracy into the world uh, as if that's what's being done with his drone strikes, um, in fact, having killed at least three people with a drone strike the day he's giving his inauguration in Yemen. So, I mean, uh, he, he, he certainly he did not say any of the things that one who would know anything about Dr. King or that movement would be looking for. He said very little that I think anyone uh, who would be hopeful that he would be doing anything simply progressive would look for. Uh, you know, his claims to ending war while... while you know, it's is, um, uh, hard to believe, given that he continues these drone strikes. The private um, security forces that are sent over in Iraq are still there. And as far as I know, they're still there in greater numbers than than uh, uh, official U.S. service personnel. So when he says he's drawing down the troops, he's not talking about the, the majority of the people who are still over there fighting and killing and... Uh, um, as far as I could ever tell, uh, interrupting progressive political development in Iraq, uh, he's he's still hostile uh, and bellicose when talking about Iran uh, and this, this this need to sort of protect against a nebulous and never-ending terrorist network. So I mean, I you know it's it's the, the when he makes his empty statements about you know adhering to the Constitution and living up to the founding fathers. Uh, there's certainly nothing progressive or radical in that, given uh, that uh, many of the founding fathers, as far as I could tell, are not worth, um, you know, honoring well, in that way. And yeah. the Constitution is ultimately a document that continues to protect slavery. So I don't, you know. So anyway, I'm not hearing. I was not aware of anything in his speech that, that would give hope to to anyone with a forward-thinking, uh, progressively political mind, or anyone who knew anything about Dr. King. Hmm.
0: I was wondering if we could maybe switch gears a little bit. Uh, He's, uh, with his second term coming up, he's uh, nominated a number of of people to be key players in his administration. Uh, John Brennan is the new CIA CIA head that he's nominated. Uh, Hillary Clinton is going to be replaced by Senator Kerry. Uh, There's uh, the the White House Chief of Staff, Jack Lew, is going to replace Timothy Geithner. Uh, Chuck Hagel, uh, the new Secretary of defense, and he's apparently made some controversial remarks about, with regard to Israel, and, so-called controversial remarks with regard to Israel and Iran. So I, I'm wondering, if structure is strategy in slow motion, what would you project, given those picks, about what we can expect from uh, U.S. Uh, domestic and foreign policy going ahead?
1: Well, I mean, Brennan was on his, whatever the team is called, that determined who he gets bombed each week with the drone strikes. Uh, So all I can tell is that that would be sort of more uh, institutionalized within the CIA, who continues to control its own drone strike um, uh, capability and apparatus, uh, um, you know, some say in a way that's almost autonomous from the president himself anyway. Uh, um, uh, Some have said positively the hope is that since Chuck Hagel and, and John Kerry both served in Vietnam and have actually seen combat, which is something foreign to most of the people who send uh, us to war, um, that this might be a a step in the right direction. But um, I see no evidence of that. I mean, there's certainly nothing that I could identify in the political career of John Kerry uh, uh, and to a lesser extent Chuck Hager that would suggest that they are going to extend, uh, um, you know, peace into the world uh, and and reduce America's uh, military footprint in the world or the United States footprint in the world. Jack Lew is is more of the same um, uh, sort of uh, uh, institutional politician and and uh, kind of uh, 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 you know corporate uh, savoring um, uh, appointee as well. It's, it's, in other words, so I don't I don't necessarily see from this any what what, what could possibly lead to uh, any radical change in foreign policy. And I mean I know that that Hagel's comments comments. Uh, about the israel's uh, uh... lobbying power within the united states have gotten him some attention but he's uh, if i remember correctly he backed away from those comments anyway um, and uh, they've certainly never led to an actual discussion of what is the impact of the israeli lobby in american foreign policy uh... and you know so so um, I, I can't say from these appointments that we could expect um, any major radical changes uh, coming in, in the future i don't see uh, you know, Jack Lew, as far as I'm aware, is more of, a, of an extension of Geithner as, as opposed to some sort of departure. Uh, so, I, I, yeah, I, I, th- there's nothing that, that I see as a sign um, that anything is going to change. And the thing that I failed to mention thus far that I think is always important to remind him is, is that I don't see anybody in this administration willing uh, or able to resist what is ever in, uh, uh, encouraging Obama to continue this militarization of the African continent with AFRICOM Either uh, so, and that to me is as much a, a concern as anything else that the, uh, that the president is or is not doing. Um, so no, in terms of the you know the the, the institutionalization of policy or ideas, uh, I don't see that uh, uh, what's coming in the second term is going to be any different or any better. Hmm.
0: If I could possibly offer one last withering attempt to, uh, defend, uh, Obama. Uh, some people uh, have, have pointed out, well, you know, as, as difficult as, as the situation might be right now, I mean, wouldn't things be a lot worse if we had somebody like Mitt Romney or, or John McCain in power? Um, what, what would you say to that kind of, uh, uh, you know, sort of like lesser of two evils argument?
1: Well, you know, you mentioned Black Agenda Report, and and though I, I'm, I'm no longer a, a columnist there, I do think that Glenn Ford is to be credited and uh, accommodated for uh, being among the first, if not the first, or, or one of the most, uh, you know, open proponents of this idea that Obama is not the lesser of two evils, he's the more effective of two evils, that is that uh, uh, Obama is getting away with things that no white president could get away with. And, and I think those who have uh, orchestrated his, his two terms uh, are well aware of that. Uh, as I mentioned, the militarization of the African continent, uh, going as he did in his first term and telling African leadership that, there, that the problems with the continent are not uh, Western imperialism uh, or neocolonialism, but African corruption, uh, you know, uh, uh, bombing Libya, uh, uh, extending the drone warfare, extending the military budget beyond what Bush has done, uh, saying, you know, lecturing black fathers in the United States about being about their insufficient, uh, you know, parenting skills. Uh, I mean, these are things that no white president could ever get away with, um, uh, with without major protest. I mean, you know, extending the, the, you know, forgiving the warrantless wiretapping, you know, extending Guantanamo Bay, uh, um, you know, uh, there are more, he's, he's, he's had more cases brought against whistleblowers than any previous president. He's deported more Latinos than any president previously. He supported the border war, wall, that is, the fence with, with Mexico. I mean, none of these policies would be, <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it literally is laughable to think that if a, pre, a white president or McCain or, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, or Romney were elected, that if they were doing, if, if, if they were at the head of these policies, it is laughable to think that the left, that the black community, that, that well meaning people everywhere would not be far more riled up and far more engaged in protest. Uh, certainly, uh, they wouldn't have had the prescient brilliance to, as the Washington Post said of him, make Al Sharpton a surrogate for the White House to tell black people that what, what Obama is doing is good for them, regardless of whether uh, that is true. Uh, they wouldn't have had the, the, the pressure and so the ability to have special invitation uh, press conferences with, with black uh, journalists uh, and black bloggers to assure that there is, again, this insulated wall in the media to protect him against righteous and just criticism. Uh, so, I mean, you know, and, and, and certainly... If, uh, if Romney or or uh, McCain were presiding over the, in, the increased level of um, uh, mass incarceration and political imprisonment that we see happening here in the United States, uh, there is simply no way we could suspect or suggest or, 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 or conclude, rather, that uh, there would be this level of apathy, this level of defense for that president. So. Uh, I, I have to agree with Glenn Ford that he is not the, the lesser of two evils, he is the more effective evil, and he is funded and supported and surrounding himself with the exact same people who have brought up these crises and who have continued to make them worse.
0: Well, Gerald um, Ball, uh, these uh, insights, these viewpoints that you put forward are, uh, uh I believe, pretty foreign to uh, most people who uh, consume mainstream media so I'm very delighted and um, feel privileged to have uh, you express them on our program thank you very much for these uh, perspectives
1: thank you and um, if I can I do have to make a shameless plug uh, for a book I my, my co-editor just put out a live reinvention correcting Manny Marable's Malcolm X where some of these same politics some of the same criticism uh, that we've discussed here today are brought to bear in terms of what has been done to Malcolm X's image uh, and the role that many Marble Viking press have played in that uh, and uh, the way that uh, there has been a similar attempt to connect Ma- uh, Pre- President Obama to Malcolm X in terms of political lineage. Um, so we we'll invite people to check that out at I mix what I and again thank you for your time.
0: Thank you. Dr. Jared Ball is an associate professor of communication studies at Morgan State University. He is a commentator and writer. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partner campus community radio stations across the country. We are also podcasting the site for the Center for Research on Globalization at globalresearch.ca. On January 11th of this year, at the invitation of the Malian president, France started launching airstrikes on territory in northern Mali controlled by Islamic militant groups. Days later, an attack on the BP stat oil sonatrack in Aminas, gas field complex in neighboring Algeria, ensued with 41 Westerners being kidnapped. Algeria's efforts to rescue the hostages led to a bloodbath. 69 people, including 39 foreigners, are believed to be dead as of Wednesday, January 23rd. Michel Chosodovsky is Emeritus Professor of Economics at the University of Ottawa and founder and head of the Center for Research on Globalization. We asked him about the players involved in the current conflict and what he saw as the broader geostrategic factors in play.
2: Historically, Al-Qaeda, the network Al-Qaeda, which is a nebulous uh, set of organizations, is considered to be an intelligence asset of the CIA. Uh, It goes back to the Soviet-Afghan war. Um, It is presented to public opinion as an outside enemy, and that the Western world is combating terrorism. But when you start to analyze this more carefully, you realize that most of these organizations were trained and recruited in the heyday of the Soviet-Afghan war. And uh, the architect of the terrorist attack on the BP, uh, Statoil, Aminas gas field complex is um, a leader called Mokhtar Belmokhtar. He is head of an al-Qaeda-affiliated organization called Uh, the masked brigade, or those who sign with blood. Uh, But when you look at his history, you realize that he was, in fact, recruited by the CIA back in the late 80s, early 90s, to go and fight in Afghanistan, at a time when the CIA was, in fact, supporting the jihadists. And this is no trivial matter, because those recruits went through the training, the indoctrination uh, in the madrasas, in the guerrilla training camps, funded by Saudi Arabia, um, Qatar, and supported by the CIA and its, um, its uh, affiliate in Pakistan, the Inter-Services Intelligence, and so that, in effect, al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb uh, is, from an intelligence point of view, an intelligence asset. Uh, I mean, the CIA will probably say, well, there was a blowback. They went against us in the wake of the Cold War. But there's ample evidence that these organizations, these terrorist organizations, are covertly supported by the Western powers. In, In fact, there's even Uh, You know, there's even a public acknowledgement. If we look at Syria, we see that that the the factions in Syria, the terrorist factions in Syria, al-Qaeda linked, and they're supported by NATO. And they're financed by Qatar, and they're financed by Saudi Arabia. Now, we have a similar situation in the Islamic Maghreb. These organizations ultimately are, uh, uh, they bear the footprints of the CIA. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting necessarily that the West is behind uh, this particular incident, but it, it cannot be dissociated from the fact that these various al-Qaeda factions uh, are covertly supported and also funded by several of uh, the United States allies, including Qatar and Saudi Arabia.
0: Mm. Now, uh, I, j- I just wanted to, to reference uh, quickly, uh, I, th- there was an interview recently on RT in which they approached the British ambassador to Algeria, and uh, he had uh, made the comment that, uh, like when the interviewer pressed him on the point, that uh, that the, 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 there's sort of a, like a double standard. On the one hand, they are supporting these uh, Syrian militant groups, these militant groups in Syria, and uh, they're wanting to stop the so the these uh, militant groups in Mali they uh, basically he's explaining well in in Syria these are the people rising up against a brutal dictator and uh, whereas it's different in Mali Uh, what do you say to that uh, kind of double standard in terms of who the uh, these the the states like France and the United States are um, you know in terms of whether they support or appear to support these militant groups
2: well it it it, it, it's you know, it's a nonsensical statement, because the mercenaries which are fighting in in Syria are also the same mercenaries which are fighting in, in Mali. Uh, they're recruited internationally. You have Libya Islamic Fighting Group uh, mercenaries in Syria, but you also have them in, in, uh, in Mali and Algeria. Um, there are links between al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb and the Libya Islamic Fighting Group Um, I think what the U.S. ploy has been um, over the last uh, 30 years is twofold. One, it will use the Islamic brigades as their foot soldiers, i.e., Libya, with the Libya Islamic Fighting Group, uh, which waged a war against Gaddafi. They were supporting them covertly. They had special forces in their ranks. Um, Syria, the the Free Syrian Army, integrated by jihadist Salafist groups, supported covertly by Western intelligence with special forces in their ranks, committing atrocities, trained and recruited in the Gulf states, financed by Qatar and Saudi Arabia, um, supported by Turkey. Um, Mali um, and Somalia and other countries might be maybe nigeria could be considered as as a different context where terrorists are actually planted and supported and they create conditions which will then lead to destabilization and to the uh, to the and to the Justification for Western, um, you know, for Western um, uh, intervention. In both cases, it's Western intervention. But here, the, the, you know, the terrorists in in Al- in um, in the Maghreb and in Mali are considered as the bad guys, and consequently, the Western forces must come to the rescue of the government. Uh, whereas in Syria, the terrorists are considered as the good guys and the west must intervene on the side of the terrorists against the government so that you have but in both cases the the terrorists are being used as a, as a means to destabilize sovereign countries
0: mm. now you also mentioned <coughs> excuse me you also mentioned in your article that uh, there is a group called the the national movement for the liberation of azawad which is a a twerig, uh, what you will call a tuareg secular nationalist independence movement. So it's, it's not, as I understand it, one of these Islamic uh, groups. Is this simply a, a situation where you see the convergence of, uh, uh, of, of their aims with those of the, the, the international players within Mali?
2: Well, let's say that the, 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 the movement, the nationalist movement of the Tuareg, has been uh, ongoing for quite some time. The Tuareg live in the northern part of Mali. They're pastoral um, uh, community. They are nomadic. Uh, they move across into Algeria, back to Mali, into Mauritania. Uh, and uh, their movement was quite separate from that of the, of the Islamists. At one point, they, uh, there was some collaboration between the two movements, uh, and uh, in recent developments, the Islamists have uh, have gone against them they're not involved in any kind of um, uh, religious uh, um, uh, ambitions, but there are factions within that movement, uh, and there are some factions which are pro jihadists and others which are not. The fact of the matter is that that the, the insertion of the jihadists into that particular part of northern Mali is also destabilizing the the the, the nature of that uh, of that resistance movement.
0: So we're we're sort of seeing because it sounds kind of similar to uh, you know Afghanistan in the sense that uh, you've got what, what you're identifying as these uh, intelligence assets that are uh, basically trying to to, frust- to to destabilize the politics for in the interest of these foreign uh, brokers. Um, I, I guess I'm just wanting to uh, inspect a little bit what the aims are, uh, at least in the case of Mali. What uh, what what are the strategic assets that uh, these international players are trying to uh, get hold of or uh, further? What is your sense of the, the strategic yeah. aspects of this? But
2: first of all, I should say that... that it's distinct from Afghanistan in that if you go back to the Soviet-Afghan war, which started in 1979 under the Carter administration, started supporting the Mujahideen, they were considered as freedom fighters. Uh, those were the words of Ronald Reagan at the time. The Mujahideen, al-Qaeda, was, was considered as a liberation movement, and America came to their rescue or came to their support. In fact, they created them. They created the whole this jihadist movement. Now, in this particular case, the jihadists are the bad guys, and you intervene on the side of the government. But ultimately, the the end result is 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 one uh, of justifying a military intervention uh, by the United States, by France, uh, with a view to recolonizing that that area. Now, I have, um, I mean. I, I think that many people are saying, and I think it has to be qualified, that this is a, re, a recolonization by France. It's not a recolonization by France. France already has um, a historical role in that region, uh, and uh, in other words, what was formerly uh, French West Africa and French West, uh, Equatorial Africa. And in many of these countries, France is losing ground to the, uh, 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 and is being, in a sense, shoved out by uh, uh, the United States, and this is taken on different forms. Uh, what I'm suggesting there is that, in effect, the, the broader long-term objective of the United States is to establish a U.S. sphere of influence in areas of Africa which were formerly under French jurisdiction. I'm talking about the colonial period, but also the post-colonial period, Mali, Niger, Senegal, all these countries were in the French orbit. And what is now happening is a process whereby the former colonial power, uh, who (laughs) i ironically, is intervening on behalf of Washington, but which is ultimately being displaced. Uh, the United States wants to control the armed forces. It's got, it's got AFRICOM. It has agreements with African countries. It also is displacing France with regard to the economic um, cleavages. Uh, the CFA franc was, uh, was destabilized in the 1990s. And uh, what is at stake here, and it's very important to look at the map, uh, is a vast territory extending from the Atlantic Ocean, Mauritania, right through across the continent to the western border of the Sudan, or what was previously called the Anglo-Egyptian Sudan, which is, which is now more and more within the U.S. Uh, sphere of interest, or within the Anglo-American sphere of influence, so that essentially um, U.S. geopolitics uh, is based on re- redrawing the map of Africa, which was uh, established at the Berlin Conference in 1884-1885, uh, um, between the essentially European powers, and essentially uh uh, establishing its grip over a vast area um, of, uh, of uh, uh, sub-Saharan Africa, which corresponds to that belt of the Sahel, immediately south of the Saharan desert. And it's an area of tremendous wealth. There's gold, there's uranium, there's petroleum, there's natural gas, strategic minerals. And ultimately, that is the uh, longer-term objective, uh, people might say, well, this sounds um, somewhat um, unusual, given the fact that um, François Hollande, the French president, is, uh, is supporting, uh, is intervening. Um, but ultimately, François Hollande is not serving the French Republic. Is not serving the economic interests of the French Republic. Uh, he's serving the, the geopolitical interests of the United States. And uh, if, uh, if we look at the experience of Rwanda, uh, how, a f- how a country where France, French was an official language barely, you know, barely 20 years ago, um, and following the, the genocide and the incursion and installation of the Kagame government under the RPF, the, 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 the Rwandan Patriotic Front, what do we have? English is established as an official language. Uh, French remains as official language, but it's no longer taught at the university. The university is now fully 100% English. Secondary schools in Rwanda were bilingual up until 2009. Now secondary schools are only in English. Okay? So there you are. In the matter of 20 years, Rwanda is now becoming part of of a, of a new... Uh, set of cleavages with English being the official language. The president of Rwanda doesn't even speak French. Okay,
0: Professor Chostofsky, I what, what you're telling me uh, about essentially the France France is consenting to this uh, handover of its uh, historic uh, colonial territory to the United States, and it sounds reminiscent of the Indochina Wars, where uh, you know you, you had that territory in Southeast Asia, which the France had previously controlled, and uh, and it then. Seem to move into the U.S. sphere of interest, or, or that was what the the plan, the game plan was. Why? I'm not sure you've adequately explained this. Why is France consenting to this?
2: Well, France is consenting to this because, on the one hand, they want to share the spoils of a U.S.-led military intervention, uh, but I think. France is uh, is collaborating in this um, U.S. project uh, because France because uh, the French French presidency is increasingly responding to American interests. We saw that during the the presidency of Nicolas Sarkozy. I think Jacques Chirac was a watershed. Okay, but the increasingly France is obeying orders. It is not acting as a major uh, power on the geopolitical chessboard, uh, so that the French presidency is, uh, is complicit in pursuing the interests of the United States at the expense of France. Uh, and uh, that uh, was very clear under Sarkozy. Uh, but it seems that that uh, that the new president uh, uh, François Hollande, is is um, is doing exactly the same thing. And what I'm also suggesting, and that's something which has to be further investigated, is that the actual choice of a of a of a head of state and uh, and a foreign minister. We we have we had the foreign minister Bernard Kusner. We know that Bernard Kusner was a pro-U.S. Okay. So that, that, that was under Sarkozy. Now, w- what I'm saying is that when political appointments in a country like France are influenced by uh, major uh, financial interests, you know, J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, the oil companies, and so on, you then have a situation where politics in France is subservient to those interests, okay? and. Um, it is also subservient in a sense to us imperial policy which uh, which um, supports those corporate interests so we're no longer in the realm of of competing colonial powers we're in the realm of uh, what i would describe euphemistically, as the French-American War. We had the Spanish-American War. Americans remember it very well, going back to the, to the late 19th century, where Spanish territories eventually all got gobbled up by the United States. Okay, And, uh, and uh, we can look at other colonial possessions, like, let's say, Indonesia, uh, which belonged to, uh, to the Netherlands. Um, the Japanese, uh, former Japanese colonies of the, of the great uh, East Asia co-prosperity sphere. So that essentially um, in, the, in the course of the last 100 years, the United States has been gaining influence, uh, not necessarily formal colonization, because that, in effect, is no longer the, what is sought but is gaining influence and, uh, uh, over territories which were previously under the dominion of Spain, Portugal, uh, you know, Japan, Holland, and, of course, France. And here we still have France as exerting a major influence in the African continent, being gradually displaced by uh, U.S., the U.S. militarization of the continent, the control that the United States exerts on monetary um, aspects, the dollarization of the continent, that's also another dimension, the role of the IMF World Bank reforms, which very much obey the, 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 the Washington consensus. That has played a role in destabilizing these, uh, these African economies, and so on. So that I see it as a historical process. Of displacement of France uh, from its traditional um, territories, uh, which it conquered uh, starting in the late 19th century, uh, Mali was was conquered. I mean, all these. This was a military agenda, and it, it followed suit from the Berlin Conference of, of 18 of 1885.
0: There's been some suggestions that uh, some of the these. Uh Attacks by uh, what you identify as these intelligence assets among the Al Qaeda affiliates—that uh, they've been uh, assisted by the the groups that are now uh, active in Libya. So- well,
2: absolutely. First of all, Al Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb and uh, the Libya Islamic Fighting Group—they more or less uh, signed a, 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 an agreement or established a relationship in two thousand seven. Uh, and uh, they're very closely knit. The two the two organizations are closely knit. They they uh, they intertwine, so to speak. Um, and bear in mind the the attack on the BP StatOil uh, facility in Amenas, the Amenas gas field complex, is located right at the border with Libya. And one would suspect that that Libyan fighters are involved. So
0: that.
2: Um, but we have a lot of evidence pointing to the support uh, of uh, the not only the United States, but British MI6, uh, uh, British Special Forces, uh, 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 to uh, support of the Libya Islamic Fighting Group. We also know that that group is also being active in Syria, so that, in effect, the the war on Libya was was, uh, well, the war on Libya was quite different, because they there they they were supporting the Islamists, and now they're coming to the rescue of the government against the Islamists. Um, but uh, if we want to look at it historically, uh, I would I'd say that Libya, the the war on Libya, and the war on Mali and Algeria are intimately related. They're part of a roadmap, um, and... Uh, they're part of, um, you know, of, of several stages. And this particular war is a follow-up um, of the war on on Libya. Libya was conquered because it has 3.5 percent of global oil and gas reserves, which is approximately double those of the United States of America for a population of less than 7 million people. Um, it's tremendous wealth, but it is also the gateway to that um sub-saharan belt the the sahelian belt geographically if you if you look at the map you can see how algeria and libya you know and uh it, it really constitute uh, a a frontier to uh, to a vast area of sub-saharan africa
0: hmm. now uh, Professor Chasidovsky, I remember that uh, around the time of uh, the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq, there were uh, th- there was a lot of uh, buzz on the internet about uh, a book called *The Grand Chessboard* by Zbigniew Brzezinski, which was essentially that what you just said—a uh, roadmap saying you know where the next major wars are going to be fought. I- I'm wondering uh, if. There is any kind of a you know, documentation you could point to that can give us a clear idea of what's next in terms of, of Mali and, and uh, the rest of Sudan or of, of the rest of Africa.
2: Well, it, you know, I, I I can't make any predictions with regard to U.S. Uh, NATO military planning, but certainly what what is ongoing is, first of all, a globalisation of NATO. The the and that is well brought out in the in the recent book of, of Mardin uh, Darius uh, Nazem Roya. Um, but it's also the establishment of, of a global military agenda. Um, this, this is not new because the the United States has established regional commands. But the most recent regional command which it has established is U.S. AFRICOM. And, uh, and we see already... Uh, we see various things happening in the African continent. We see destabilize, attempts to destabilize by creating ethnic strife. We see it in Nigeria. We see it in the, in the Central African Republic, Chad, Niger, uh, of course Mali, um, and, and of course Somalia. Uh, and then on, and 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 we we also see these the, the use of the drone attacks, which are, I think. Increasingly going to be applied to to police this uh, this vast continent. Um, we see also the involvement of the United States uh, and Britain in uh, in the Congo, in Rwanda, in Sudan. It's uh, it's a war for natural resources. It's not strictly a war for for oil. There's tremendous mineral wealth. There's strategic minerals in in. In the, in sub-Saharan Africa, but I I can't. It, it's very difficult at this stage to to um, identify a sequence or a roadmap. Uh, I should mention that if you look at the project of the New American Century, which which was really the the cornerstone of the neoconservative um, team of uh, of the former president George W. Bush. What they posit in that document is not necessarily a sequence of military operations, but the adoption of simultaneous actions. Uh, they talk about they talk about theater wars simultaneously uh, implemented in different parts of the world. The Brzezinski approach, which broadly coincides with uh, with with the Democratic Party is somewhat different. It, uh, it applies more conventional warfare as opposed to the blitzkrieg, non-conventional warfare, I'm sorry, as opposed to conventional warfare, and there the emphasis is much more on destabilization, um, covert operations, and so on, with a view to then uh, picking up the pieces of, uh, later on.
0: Okay. Well, Professor I we really appreciate those uh, that analysis. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Professor Michel Chosodovsky. He's the award-winning author and uh, emeritus professor of economics at the University of Ottawa, the founder and director of the Centre for Research on Globalization, and uh, he's uh, also the author of the book Towards a World War Three Scenario, the Dangers of Nuclear War. The Global Research News Hour is broadcast every Thursday at 10 a.m. on CKUW 95.9 FM and on our partner stations across the country. You can download our podcasts from the Center for Research on Globalization's website at globalresearch.ca. I am host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.